If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible and need a Bible, we want to make sure everybody has a Bible. Uh, we do have some available in the back foyer or on the side table here. You can pick those up, take them with you. You're, they're yours to keep. Write your name in them. And uh, we just want everybody to make sure that they have uh, a scripture available to them. Uh, we're going to be starting just before we get to chapter 4, actually. And uh, in this book, we have noticed that First Peter is writing to believers in Jesus Christ who, as a result of believing in Jesus and living out Jesus, they've been persecuted. Uh, many of them have been taunted. Many of them maybe have received physical harm. In fact, Christians of that day were so tortured that the emperor of that day, Nero, would take them and actually, if they were having a party like we're having a party, to light up that party, he would stick Christians on a pole and then light them on fire. That's what he was doing. Um, so it was a brutal, torturous time to be a Christian. They were a marginalized group, and now Peter's trying to write to them saying, you know what, even though you're marginalized, the God of heaven has done such a work to save you. I want to write you and encourage you, even in the midst of this suffering. And so that was what he's going to do today as we go there. I want, I want to present a question for you even before we get started. And this goes into all areas of life. But it's, uh, the question is this. The question is, what is the greatest threat? What is the greatest threat to your freedom? What is the greatest threat to your freedom, to your liberty? And as you consider that question, and, and, and I'm sure immediately your, your mind can go to what the news is, is broadcasting all the time. So we might consider, you know, um, our president going over and having talks, nuclear talks with Kim Jong-un over in North Korea, uh, considering other dictators and, and nations around the world that might come to try to inflict harm on our nation and to strip us of our freedoms. Maybe when I said, what is the greatest threat to freedom? You were thinking of another country, maybe somebody who would come and, and harm us. Uh, maybe, as I say, who, who's trying to take away your freedom? Maybe it's not a foreign country. Maybe you're most concerned just about the politics in our own country. You're, you're considering, hey, they're trying to take away my Second Amendment rights. Okay, how many of you were, were about to thrust your hand up saying that? Um, it's a big topic nowadays. And all, all kinds of things throughout our society saying, maybe people are coming to take away your freedom, your liberty in a certain area like that. Um, maybe yours didn't have anything to do with politics or government. Maybe, as I said, who's, who's taking away your freedom immediately? It was um, maybe it was uh, um, a, a, a cultural thing where somebody has said, well, as a result of my preference, I don't want you to do that. Uh, some of you younger kids, maybe you've, uh, younger people, somebody said, I don't want you to get a tattoo. And you're like, isn't it my freedom to get a tattoo? I don't know. I'm just throwing out whatever it is. Somebody has come and they've said, I don't want you don't have the freedom to do what you want to do. Or maybe that's even too broad. Maybe for some of you, when I said, what is the greatest threat to your freedom? You, you younger kids, maybe you said, the greatest threat to me doing what I want to do and my parents. I, I just want to get going. I want to be on the run. I want to do what I want to do. And you said, the greatest threat to my freedom isn't Kim Jong-un. It's the person in my house who's not letting me do what I want to do. Or maybe it's your teacher or maybe. And so as we consider that question, what is the greatest threat to your freedom? And as you begin to consider all the other systems and all the other nations and governments and people and maybe even those sitting right around you that might affect the threat to your freedom, what I'm going to propose for you today, not of my own opinion, but from the scripture, is that the greatest threat to your freedom and the greatest threat to my freedom is not outside this room. In fact, the greatest threat isn't even the one sitting next to you. The greatest threat to your freedom is you. 
You are the greatest enemy to you. And even in all the politicking and even in all the conversations at work or even in your Sunday school class or among your family, it's easy to go and and, and do the blame game. But when Scripture comes and addresses people, and as Peter goes and addresses this issue, he doesn't go out and say, let's go and forge a different way to cause the emperor to treat us nicely. What he says is, in the midst of all this turmoil, you got to recognize who you are in the sight of God. What has God done to come and change your life and to bring you out of a place that was slavery and death because of your sin and bring you into a place of freedom in which you are alive and you're actually in relationship with God? Because the reality is, as much as you feel oppressed and no matter what situation you were going to say, that's where somebody's still my freedom. A lot of times you're not going to be able to change that situation. You may not have enough votes to get it done. You may be too young. You're still in the house of that person. I don't know what it is for you, but the reality is you got to address yourself first. And God wants to address us first. And so as we've considered first Peter and and how he's just continued to speak to this church concerning what Jesus has done for us. He said at the end of chapter three, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me just address that real fast. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. This is what he's not saying. We talked about this last week. He's not saying that we should take all you and bring you back to the baptismal. And if we dunk you in water, if we do that, if we do that work, then you're saved because the scripture is clear. It is not by works that you're saved. It's nothing that I can do. It's nothing that you can do. It's nothing your pastor can do for you. It's nothing your grandmama can do for you. It is simply a work of God that's done in your heart. He initiates it. He accomplishes it. And so God saves you. The baptism that he's talking about isn't a water baptism that we perform. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that he does in the heart of an individual that he wants to save. And so that's the baptism that saves you and says it's not a removal of dirt from the body. But what he's done is it's an appeal to God. Somebody on your behalf went before God and said, please. Would you wash this one I love clean? And do you know who that one was? It says that Jesus Christ went and interceded for you. That he's the one who went to the father and said, Father, I've given my blood. I would love to save Jason. And so the spirit was sent and he he did a work in my heart and he's done a work in your heart. And that's the baptism that's occurred. It didn't wash the outside. That wasn't the problem. It didn't take away all the other circumstances. That wasn't the problem. The problem was your heart. The problem was the sin that was already there. And so he baptized you. He plunged you into his spirit and he changed your heart and he put you into the body of Christ. And so that appeal to God to save you now, it says here, it was for a good conscience. And that's a good thing. That's what we're going to kind of talk about today is that when he saved you, that means you no longer have to walk around with guilt. How many of you grew up in a churchy religious experience where all the time you just felt guilty. You were never, ever good enough. There was always a problem. Even if you were trying to do what was right and just having fun loving, it was was always something wrong. I brought up tattoos earlier and there was a story. I I, I love Reader's Digest. And and, uh, there was one of these stories of a a woman and her four-year-old son who were standing 
in a, in, a, in a store or something. This man walked in. He had tattoos all over his body. And the little boy says, looks like somebody got into the markers. <laughs> you know, and apparently that boy had gotten into the markers himself. There had been a situation where he knew that's not what you do. I was, you want the freedom, but then suddenly, suddenly somebody is telling you, and maybe you had that experience where the things that you would do, and you're just trying to live. But you never went to church enough. You never helped out enough. You didn't set the table right. You just couldn't get it right, and so you always felt guilty. And, and there was probably probable cause for you to feel guilty. Because the scripture says we come out of the womb Kicking and screaming against God and rebelling. We just want to do what we want to do. And so whether it's against parent or just against God or against others, we are constantly trying to sin. And there was a reason for guilt. And then guilt just gets heaped on and heaped on and heaped on. And we just live under guilt. But God desired to cleanse you, to remove the sin from your heart and then to be set free so that you would have a good conscience. And so you don't have to walk around anymore saying, I'm so guilty. You know why? Because when that happened, the scripture says he took all your guilt and he took all your sin. He took all the things that you had ever done and he took it off of you that moment that you prayed for forgiveness. He took it off of you and he put it onto the cross. He put it onto Jesus Christ so that when the father in heaven looked down on Jesus, he saw the guilty one. All the guilt that you had for all that you had done, all the things that you couldn't do. Jesus took and he suffered under the wrath of God. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, the scriptures say, then we are healed. And so this says, now there's an appeal that we would have a good conscience. And Jesus then gave us his righteousness. After he took our sin, we get his righteousness. And now we have this good conscience. And just in case anybody might try to come and say, "Uh, that's not legal. You can't do that. The very next verse says this. Verse 22, Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. He is sovereign, almighty God. There is no one can come and question his judgment and his justice and what he's done to save you. Even you. Sometimes the biggest threat is to your, to your freedom is to sometimes consider yourself no longer free. But certainly I can't be forgiven. Yeah, I know I prayed the prayer. Man, I've done so much since that moment. Certainly, I'm going to need more help. But Jesus, who's in charge of all things, angels, principalities, he's above and beyond. No one can come and question, not even you. If he has saved you, he has saved you. You have a good conscience now and you get to live in and for Jesus Christ. And now he calls you to live no matter what circumstances surround you calls you to live for him does that mean we shouldn't do bad things yeah we shouldn't do bad things but it means also that he's cleansed us and now he goes in to chapter four and he's saying he's saying as a result as a result of you being saved other people are seeing that and you might be suffering it might cause you to have a little bit of hardship it says in chapter uh, four verse one since therefore christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. It says, since Christ suffered, you should arm yourselves with this way of thinking. And think about the language that he's using right there. Arm yourselves. Uh, on Friday night, we had a, a nine-year-old birthday slumber party happening at our house. And it was, it was these boys. I mean, it was, they were running wild. A good while. They weren't being bad or naughty or anything. It was just a joy to listen to them go. And they were, they were being so creative and coming up with these role play games. And I remember they had, they had pieced together different, um, different toys to, to form, I don't know, some type of guns or something. And they were, they were sneaking down the stairs. And, and it was so fun to overhear their, their conversation because here they had armed themselves. And one of them says, cover me. For a moment, I thought, they're coming after me. It says, uh, cover me. And the other one says, yeah, now we've got to go kick some tail. And, and it, was, it was just so interesting to listen in to what they were doing because in the midst of their even playing, they knew that, that they couldn't go into that battle just saying, hey, we're here and we're here to fight. Here, kids knew that whatever enemy they were going against in their role-playing game, they were in a community, they were on their way to a battle, and in order to have any chance in the midst of that battle, they had to arm themselves. They had to get themselves ready. And so, as it comes to this life that we have in Christ, that's what Peter's saying. Therefore, as Christ suffered in the flesh, you better arm yourself in the same way. Well, what does he arm myself with what? It's not nine-year-olds getting blocks and marbles together for this war. It is a spiritual battle. There is somebody in some things trying to take away your freedom in Christ. And what then do you need to arm yourselves in order to stand firm? Interesting here, it says that those who have suffered have ceased from sin. How many of you in the midst of your life, you, you have said the prayer and now you still are ongoing in this constant battle of getting rid of sin? A sin here, a sin there, a lie here, a, a small theft from work there. I mean, you've got sin all over. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe it's one of those things where it's just over and over and over. You have a habitual sin that you can't seem to shake. Let me tell you one of the reasons that God allows suffering in our lives. Nobody wants suffering. Raise your hand if you love it. Yep, I'm not leaving mine up. I don't like it. We've talked earlier that one of the things that God does as we suffer is he allows that to be useful to confirm our faith that he has started that in our lives, but also to grow our faith. But now we come to another result of suffering when there is suffering as a result of your Christianity, when other people are mocking you, when you um, don't get to do all the things that the world gets to do. And later on, if there becomes some type of physical hardship against us as a result of our faith that the result of suffering is this if you suffer in the flesh it makes things real to the point that you desire to not sin anymore you know what happens in the midst of a, a, a vacuum where there's no suffering where we're comfortable we get lazy and then we begin to sin the scripture's clear. Do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. It warns us knowing that if we have too much luxury, if we just con continue to consider ourselves having all the money that we want, we get to go to what we want, we get to eat what we want, we get to do what we want, and we go within the world's desires and have worldly freedom, what that will do is it'll plunge us into desires to sin. But 
God allows in the midst of suffering there to be this thing where as a result of us suffering, we become hardened against sin. There's something about being in the midst of a battle and recognizing that you're there that focuses you on the goal of the kingdom that you're fighting for. How many times have you watched friends and neighbors, they go off and they join the military and they love their country. And they go off and they fight a battle. They've been with uh, their brothers in boot camp and they get sent away and they come back. And as a result, they love their country. They would not do anything against their country, right? It, it fortifies their desire to be faithful and loyal to what they signed up for. And so we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't raise our hand and say, please let me suffer. But when we've come to faith and God allows there to be suffering in our life, one great fruit that can actually come from that is this says that those who have suffered. They don't want to sin anymore. It becomes helpful to say. Lord, you're worth it. I see what you recognize. I'm going to arm myself with the same suffering you went through because when Jesus suffered, when they came to him and they mocked him and they spat on him and they would beat him with the reed and they pressed that crown of thorns and they made him drag that cross out of town, even to where he couldn't even do it anymore. They had another guy come and carry it for him. They made it all the way up that hill and they had him stripped down and they nailed his hands and his feet Right there, and, 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 and there he was on display in a complete embarrassment. He suffered. And on top of that, the worst part was that the greatest suffering he did didn't come from the hands of men. The scripture says as a result of what you have done, your sin, when you prayed a prayer of forgiveness and that sin was put upon Jesus, that the Father in heaven looked upon Jesus and when he saw sin that the father turned away and forsook his son. He abandoned him. Christ suffered the abandonment of the father, God almighty. And yet Jesus did that. He suffered. He he was he was going to battle. To take you out of prison and out of slavery and out of death. To yank you out of the place that you can pull yourself. There's nobody else who could fight for you. Nothing that you could do. But Jesus went to war for you. And so he suffered to pull you into freedom. And then we as Christians get lazy. After having been rescued. And we begin to get lazy and we take on the mind of the world. What would the mind of the world say freedom is? They would say, well, we can do whatever we want. We can go on and do whatever we want. And look what the passage says. This is this is the temptation is to kind of go back into the way of the world. Verse three says this. For the time that it is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And so this says there's that temptation to go back into all these different ways. And maybe you didn't grow up going to parties. Maybe you've been never associated with an orgy of any kind. But there, it had other things. Sensuality, that's not just talking sexual. That's talking anything that might get to your taste, touch, sight, hearing, feeling. And you're like, oh, I want some of that. 
Now, I've seen too many of you go to Bojangles to know that we are easily swayed by our senses. We love all the amusements of the world, and it may not be a drinking party, but man, we love to do our own thing to fill up our senses. And God's not saying you can't use your senses. He's not saying you can't enjoy your senses. But what the scripture said is that we begin to live for ourselves again and to live for those. Those sensualities said here, passions. How many of you have passions? As a result of being a Christian, we're to have God's passions and take those in. What do you want, Lord? But this said, man, it's just easy. To start living for human passions. But we're to be living for the will of God. What does God want? And so as you would ask the word, what, what, what is freedom? They might say, yo, going to parties. Following your passions. All the sexual devices that are going out there, just live it up. That's what the world says. Freedom. If you could just have nobody tell you what to do and you get to do whatever you want. But let me tell you this morning, that will not bring you freedom. That will not bring you freedom. Because the moment you take those on, it's like grabbing up balls and chains again. It's like slamming yourself in because what it's doing is it's creating a boundary between you and God. And the only place there is freedom is in the presence of God. And the moment you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, you are slamming the door on God and running away towards the world. And he says, don't live like that anymore in this world of debauchery. And you know what? One of the ways of suffering is when you say to the world, I'm not I'm not doing that anymore. My freedom's over here with Jesus. That's where it's healthy. That's where I've been saved to. And it says here that they'll mock you and they'll malign you and they'll say, well, it's it's just Bojangles. And everybody's gonna be like, this pastor doesn't like fried food. I love my fried food. I'm called to love Jesus more than a chicken nugget. I'm called to love Jesus more than listening to whatever music I want to listen to. I'm called to love Jesus more than to getting so in love with movies or a show that I would just binge watch and let nobody tell me when to stop. I am to love Jesus more than when the world says, hey, it's just one thing. It's just one more opportunity. It's just one website. It's just one conversation. It's just one way of doing it the way that we do it, the way that you do it, the way of freedom. That's not the way of freedom. Jesus saved us from death and the passions of the world that were causing us to go to eternal death and calls us into eternal life. And so it continues on here and says this. In verse five, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See. When we're chasing after the world's freedoms, one of the lies, the deceptions of Satan, the world, and even ourselves, the deceit, the lies that we tell ourselves is, I can get away with this. Nobody is watching. Nobody can see my computer screen right now. Nobody can see the thoughts I'm thinking right now. I've even heard from spouses. My spouse didn't know I spent the money on that. So I can get away with it. But this says, even if nobody else can see, 
that at one point Jesus Christ will come and he will call the living and the dead to himself. And when he says to himself, he is standing in a place of judgment. He says he will judge the living of the dead. The scripture says that there is going to be a resurrection and that the resurrection will actually be the just and the unjust, that everybody will come at that first resurrection. They will stand in front of Jesus and he will judge the nations for everything that we have done and everything that we have said and everything that we have thought. Even when we said, I thought I had the freedom to do it. I was an American. And the Lord will say, did you do my will or did you do your will? And the great part about it is this. If if you were in Christ, that moment of judgment, he will look upon you. And even though all the record in the entire world would be against you and all that you have done, the scripture says that that record of debt that you have done, if you are saved, was taken off you and placed on Jesus. And so the moment that he sees you in that place of judgment, He sees not your record of wrongdoing. Instead, it says he sees your name written in the book of life. 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 That's freedom. It's freedom to live. And Jesus' opportunity to say, don't get caught up in what people are saying will be your liberty and freedom for 50, 60, 70, 80 years of your life. When God talks about life and he's talking about himself, he's talking about eternity. And so when he sees you on that day, if he sees Jesus and there's no record because it's been paid for and he says, I see your name written in the book of life, you will enter into eternity, eternal life with him. But it says that as he looks at those books and he looks upon the records of all the sin that people have done and they did not cry out to him, they did not ask for the liberty that comes from being free from their sin. He will turn to those people and say, depart from me. And that they will suffer the wrath of Jesus. See, the the thing is this. Either you're armed with the attitude and the freedom and the life of Jesus. Or one day you'll be armed with the wrath of God. And so Peter says, live in life now. All that stuff that's going on in the world, that's not life. Jesus is life. You say, well, that's no fun. It's dangerous not to be in that place. When I come back to that thing, some of you may have said, well, this, this thing's not giving me liberty. This thing is not giving me freedom. And that's a threat. And I know for myself, when I was a youth, be like, my, my parents aren't letting me do what I want to do. We have ladies' day today, and I remember my mom saying, you can't do that, you can't do this, you should do that, you should do this. And there were times I looked at my mom and said, she's crazy. But even then I knew, and even now I know as I look back at my mom, and now that as I'm gifted with a a beautiful wife who loves Jesus and loves me, and I I, I think of these ladies, and, and you think, well, now it seems like I'm bound up. No, the opportunities that we have in those situations are to understand that my mom was there to guide me to places that were healthy. A place where I could see Jesus. A place in the way that she lived towards me that said, Jesus loves you. He set you free. Now, now go live for him. And my wife is there on a daily basis saying, look at Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. And so we are given the opportunity to live in life. One, one quick verse right here. Says in verse six to finish up, for this is why the gospel was preached 
even to those who are dead, that those uh, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is not what it means. It's easy to look at that and say, what, Jesus out in the cemetery just preaching to dead people? That's not what it means. What it means is from the very beginning of time, God has struck out on a course of saving people. Now, thousands of years later, Jesus Christ came and did the work that was saved. But ever from the beginning, he has been working to show his grace to people. He would pay for them later. It was the IOU. But Jesus was already at work to save people. That's why after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel came, Cain killed Abel. The scripture is clear that Abel had faith. That somehow the gospel had been preached to him. That somehow, even though now he's dead, that the gospel came to him and said, you need a God that has grace. There's a God who loves you. And despite all that you've done, Abel, I will save you. And so that gospel was preached to the living and the dead. So that we would all know the good love of God. So we can know this path of freedom. God's not a threat. He's not a threat to you. God is your life and he's your freedom. And so today, as we close, we're going to close quickly by taking communion. And that's really what Jesus was saying to his disciples. The threat I took for you, I was killed. My body was broken. My blood was spilt so that you could have freedom. You could come and live in this relationship with me. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, before we take this, you don't need an altar call. You don't need a preacher to pray over. What you need is to bow your head and say, Lord, save me. Clean my heart and just save me. Cry out to God in your heart. Say, if you want to pray with me, you come take me aside. We'll pray. Grab the person you know next to you. Say, let's go pray. That's fine. But this meal that anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ is invited to eat this meal that we might be reminded together of what he's done to set us free.